Welcome, everybody, to Debt Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz, and I want to welcome all of our viewers. Thank you for tuning in. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. It's been a while since we've had a one-on-one show, and I miss it. I really do miss it. It's almost been a week since we had our one-on-one time. Uh, I want to welcome some of our viewers. Mary Martins is joining us, Zachary Thomas John. Of course, a big thank you to all our moderators. Our executive producer, Marco, is with us. Philip is joining us. Of course, Saz is also moderating. I hope everyone is doing well. It's been uh, uh, quite an exciting couple of days. As you know, we went down to the Carolina Fear Fest this past weekend. Uh, had some great times. Uh, I assume a lot of you guys have seen the videos that we posted. It was a lot of fun. Got to meet a lot of exciting guests. It was exhilarating and exhausting. This was our first convention since we started this show. For me, to be honest, it, it was my first convention since the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> since the 90s. Uh, not much has changed. <laughs> Happy to say not much has changed. Uh, It was great. It was great being back there. And it was our first convention that we got to go to as press, which was an experience all in itself as well. So lots of good times. Today, we are going to be talking about, you know, getting caught up on the news and what's been going on. But before we get started with that, we have some scheduling announcements to make. Tomorrow, we are going to be doing something that we have never done before on Dead Talk Live. Tomorrow, we are going to be having two separate uh, episodes. The first one is going to be starting at 6 p.m. Eastern, where we are going to be joined by legendary Kane Hodder, who played Jason Voorhees, starting with Friday the 13th, Part 7, and on. So, Kane is going to be joining us to talk about uh, his new movie, which is called Knife Corp. And as well, we're going to touch on Friday the 13th as well. And at 9.30 p.m. tomorrow, we are going to be joined by Hannah Fearman, who was in the awesome movie VHS and a whole host of other movies as well. And then on Friday, we are going to have special guest Julian Reichings from the original Wrong Turn. I mean, I could go on with Julian's credits for the rest of the hour. He's been in so much stuff. Uh, so we are doing three guest interviews in the, in, in the course of the next two days. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I hope you guys tune in, watch. They're going to be great interviews. Uh, and I hope you guys enjoy them. I know we will, and we are announcing guests every day. So keep tabs on us and you will see who is upcoming on our show. So let's see. Want to welcome John Bond Zombie. That's an awesome name. John Bond Zombie. Kane like the wrestler Kane? No. Kane like the stuntman Jason Voorhees Kane. Kane Hodder is going to be with us tomorrow. Um, Philip is uh, with us. CC Weezy is just joining us as well. Uh, let's see. Roe is with us. SBN is joining us. Patricia, welcome to all you guys. So that's what's been going on. Uh, if you guys want to call in, talk about 
anything about the show we went to this past weekend, anything horror related, any questions, feel free to do so. So let's just go ahead and talk about what's been going on over the last week. Apparently a lot has been going on. And before I get started with that, remember uh, I've been mentioning this, well, for a long time now, with all this, with all these streaming services popping up, and we were talking about there's so every channel, every studio uh, now has their own streaming uh, service and whatnot, and there's even a name been attached to it called Subscriber Fatigue. In order to watch some of your shows, you got to subscribe to all these various different streaming services, and I made a prediction like last week, I believe, or the week before, that you're going to start seeing mergers because it's not sustainable. You cannot have 20, 30 different streaming services and expect to, because everybody, no no one's going to pay for 20 or 30 streaming services. It's going to make them want to go back to cable or satellite if they were the ones that, you know, cut the cord, right? So the mergers are starting and it's Warner Media and discovery that have officially merged into a streaming platform together and it's not going to be the last you're going to be seeing a lot of that happening because uh, all these studios realize that it's just not it's not going to be profitable for anybody if everyone every studio comes up with their own streaming services like the dozens that we have now and each one is charging their own price, people are not going to subscribe to all of them. It's basically the equivalent of cable TV on the internet, but it's actually, if you actually get all the channels you want, in some instances, it actually might end up being a lot more expensive. In most cases, it will end up being more expensive than having cable TV. So they're after they're going to have to, they're coming up with solutions and like I mentioned last week you're going to start seeing some mergers and it's already starting to happen and like I said you're going to see a lot more of them in the coming months you can bank on that uh, so anyway guys let's get on with some news here let's see what we have for you and there was a lot to pick from today so let's see let me bring it up. And let's see which ones we are going to do. Apparently, this was all over the news today. And as you guys know, I don't read these articles till we actually can get a chance to read them here together. But apparently, Stephen King reveals there was a horror movie he had to stop because it was just too freaky. And depending on the headline you read, too freaky, too scary, even for Stephen King to finish. Now, everyone has limits when it comes to fear, and fans of author Stephen King's work has inspired quite a few revelations where audience members may have found his style to be too freaky. But even a master of mystery and horror like King has those limits firmly in place. And in particularly interesting set of circumstances, he cut a viewing of the Blair Witch Project short. His reasoning was, quite frankly, because that film had crossed his personal threshold of freaky. Now, the Blair Witch Project. Okay, granted, great movie. I, 
one of the reasons that made the Blair Witch Project so scary was the marketing that led up to the movie. And a lot of people, including myself, back in the 90s, believed that it was a real story, that it actually did happen. They did an amazing job of uh, marketing that movie. Now, ever since then, a lot of people have tried to imitate it. But, you know, the saying, fool me once, shame on, you know, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you. So during a guest spot on Shudder's series, Eli Ross's History of Horror, King admitted that his first encounter with Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez's indie horror hit freaked him out. Though to be fair, the way he described his initial encounter with the 1999 found footage favorite didn't exactly paint a picture of an ideal movie-watching experience. Here's how Stephen King recalled his first run-in with the Blair Witch Project. The first time I saw the Blair Witch Project, I was in the hospital, and I was doped up. My son brought a VHS tape of it, and he said, you gotta watch this. Halfway through it, I said, turn it off, it's too freaky. To be perfectly fair, in the hospital doesn't sound like the place that someone would want to be when they're first watching any horror movie, even if you're Stephen King. However, the best-selling author has an even stronger case for his initial exposure not happening at the best of times. While 1999 did mark the year that the Blair Witch Project racked up tons of box office loot, it also happens to be when King was recovering from the near-fatal accident that saw him hit by a van while running. Eventually, there was a time that Stephen King got to finish watching The Blair Witch Project, and even then, he was still freaked out by what he saw. How many of you guys remember when you first watched The Blair Witch Project? Did it have that kind of effect on you? Uh, I mean, since then, I mean, movies have well, you know, surpassed the threshold that Blair Witch Project set back in 1999. Anyway, continuing, continuing on, thanks to the film's realistic look, which inspired future found footage hits like Paranormal Activity, which I think is a lot scarier, and Cloverfield to follow in its footsteps, King was scared by that realism. Stephen King's recovery from the van accident that saw him freak out over the Blair Witch Project did happen to inspire him to write a freaky work of his own. As a result of inspiration during his recovery, the novel for Lizzie's stories eventually came to be. Recently adapted for TV and by King himself, we'll get to see just how far outside that tale goes with Julianne Moore and Clive Owen anchoring an impressive cast of co-stars. First of all, we know watching The Blair Witch Project and Lizzie's stories back-to-back -back could be a mind-blowing experience. The scares that Stephen King experienced in that first partial viewing may have embedded themselves in his mind well enough that it may have stuck, him, stuck with him during the genesis of his own tale. Part of that experience will be available real soon, 
as Lizzie's story is about to premiere on Apple TV+, with episodes debuting on a weekly basis starting this Friday, June 4th. So there you guys have it. Stephen King was uh, freaked out by the Blair Witch Project. I never would have guessed that. Never, never would have guessed that. So uh, it's good to know, though. It shows you that even, you know, the master of horror himself, he has his limits, too. So they are remaking Firestarter. Now, a lot of you guys probably don't remember the original Firestarter, the 80s movie, which starred a very young Drew Barrymore in it. Uh, I personally love that movie. But Blumhouse finds it casted its Firestarter for Stephen King's reboot from an American Horror Story star. Ever since the project was officially announced by Blumhouse Productions, horror fans have wondered who would star in the, in the new adaptation of Stephen King's Firestarter, with the studio confirming today that Charlie would be played by American Horror Story and the Tomorrow War actor Ryan Kiera Armstrong per deadline. Production on the project kicked off last month and also stars the previously announced Zac Efron and Michael Grayeus. Blumhouse also revealed the first look at Armstrong as the young girl with pyrokinetic abilities, which you can see below. The new Firestarter doesn't currently have a release date and likely won't hit theaters until 2022. What made audiences so excited to find out who would play Charlie in the new film is that the, the role was previously played by a young Drew Barrymore in the 1984 adaptation of the novel, which also starred George C. Scott, another legend, in the role, Za, uh, sorry, in the role Ephron is embracing. The new film will be directed by Keith Thomas, who delivered audiences The Vigil, another great movie, earlier this year, from a script by Scott Teams. So you can see the picture right there. I don't know how many of you have seen Firestarter, but it was a great movie back in 1984. So let's see how this uh, reboot goes. I mean, uh, John Bond Zombie did. I loved it. Uh, Drew Barrymore was amazing. It's basically about a girl, like they said, pyrokinetic powers. She has the ability to start fires with her mind. And her dad uh, in the movie also has his own mind powers as well. So basically, the government is after them. They were in the custody. If I'm, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but they were in the custody of the government. They were doing all sorts of experiments on them, especially on the dad, and they were trying to track him down because they wanted to use them as a weapon. And the whole movie's about them running away and not getting caught. And it goes through a whole lot of action sequence. It's not technically a horror movie. It's more of an action movie, but there are some scary scenes in it. So if you're going to watch this reboot and you haven't seen the original uh, Firestarter, I recommend you watch the 1984 version with Drew Barrymore in it. 
and David Keith, as Khaleesi just said, and then compare it to this new one, you know? And I hope they do it good. I hope they do it right, because for me, Firestarter is one of those movies that is etched in my memory growing up. It came out in 1984. I was 10 years old when the original Firestarter came out. So there you guys have it. So let's see what else we got for you. Um, as you guys probably know, this coming Friday, uh, The Conjuring Part 3, The Devil Made Me Do It, is officially being released. It's being released uh, to HBO Max and to limited theaters across the country. So if you're a subscriber to HBO Max, uh, you'll be able to watch it this coming Friday. And I guarantee you, I'm going to watch it on Friday. So, anchored by the strength of the Warrens, the film is engrossing with, phys with physical and psychological horror elements permeating the story to great effect. Um, after starring in two solo The Conjuring films, the Warrens are back in a third installment and with a case that is different from the previous ones they have handled. Now, this is one of those movies that was supposed to be released last year, but because of COVID, was delayed. Um, the Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It, combines aspects of the real-life case of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, who is the first to claim demonic possession in a murder trial, with the supernatural horror that the Warrens are familiar with. Directed by Michael Chaves, The Curse of La Loña, from a screenplay by David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It is the standout horror film of the summer. Nice. Uh, anchored by the strength of the Warrens, the film is engrossing with physical and psychological horror elements permeating the story to great effect. In 1981, Ed, played by Patrick Wilson, and Lorraine Warren, by, uh, played by Vera Farmiga, are in the midst of an exorcism of David Glatzel, played by Julian Hillard, an eight-year-old boy who had just moved into a new home with his family. It's not going very well, and desperate to end David's suffering, Arnie Johnson, played by Ruari O'Connor, the boyfriend of David's sister Debbie, played by Saren Catherine Hook, asks the demon possessing David to take him instead. Not a good idea. After killing his landlord, Bruno Sauls, Arnie is arrested and claims he was possessed during the murder, which saw him stabbing Bruno, whose real name was changed for the film, 22 times. Ed and Lorraine return to the case, with their investigation leading them down some dark roads and between Ed's heart problems and Lorraine's growing spiritual connection to the case, they quickly discover that things aren't what they seem and that Arnie's situation goes beyond demon possession. Now that's intriguing. So, The Conjuring Universe has grown since the 2013 film that first introduced Ed and Lorraine Warren to audiences, and while the other films in the series aren't bad, 
the return of the Warrens as essential characters was greatly needed. And I'm assuming they're referencing to all the spin-offs, like The Nun, the Annabelle series. Not only does their presence reinvigorate the universe, but it's a reminder that the couple in the grounding point is the grounding point for the entire franchise. Their loving relationship and loyalty to one another has been the driving force that allows the horror films to push boundaries, go beyond superficial scares by connecting the Warren psychological emotional arcs to the overarching plots. The Devil Made Me Do It does this tremendously well, elevating a story of demonic possession and curses to resonate emotionally with the Warrens, their history, and the deep love they have for each other. And going back, you really have to uh, kind of give a big kudos to when they casted those two, to Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga, to play those two characters. Uh, They're awesome. Um, I could not have picked a better two to portray Ed and Lorraine Warren myself. Uh, You just, I don't know, you become attached to them. And all the other spinoff movies, like the Annabelle ones and The Nun, which are great, and they do make appearances in them, just they're not the center point of the movies, you could feel their presence lacking. Uh, I'm not saying that Annabelle or The Nun uh, would have been better if they were in the whole movie. Besides, in The Nun, it would not have worked out anyways. But I don't know. It's just something with those two are in it that makes it that much more special. And I'm a huge fan of both of them. They each bring something unique to the table. And in between looking out for one another, they support and amplify the other's gifts and expertise. The strength of their relationship is on display throughout the film as the story pivots, heightening the tension by bringing the danger to the Warren's doorstep in an attempt to pit them against each other. Going this route is effective as it deepens their relationship and raises the emotional stakes of the story. Now, of course, their relationship wouldn't be so effective without the portrayal of Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga, who are exceptional in their roles, conveying fear and the unease they have with the case. Frustrations with health issues and balancing their feelings surrounding the intense investigation with moments of deep sentimentality. So here are some more screenshots of the movie. Weaving the overarching plot with the Warrens' relationship elevates the horror-thriller aspect of the film. To that end, Chavez does a magnificent job implementing jump scares and other horrific elements that are made all the more terrifying with intense close-ups and disturbing yet exhilarating illusions. Along with the contrasting use of light and shadow, The Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It is exactly what audiences look for in a horror film. Embracing the scares without foregoing on the storyline or character development. The sequel could have easily fallen into the trap of being dull, stagnant, 
courtroom drama, but the film steers clear of such entrapments to focus on the supernatural case. Benefiting the film's direction and pacing, Shavs, who takes over from The Conjuring and its sequel director, the awesome James Wan, and Johnson McGoldrick weave together a narrative with plenty of twists, terror, and devastating psychological elements that work nearly on every level. The Warrens' cases have been greatly embellished, and the same is the case for The Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It. That's no big surprise, okay? This is a story that involved the Warrens, who did work on it, but it's a movie. So yeah, it's inspired by real events, but of course, for Hollywood's sake, it would not be nearly as good uh, if they followed it down to a T the way it went down in real life. It will, I wouldn't say it would not be nearly as good, probably would not have been nearly as scary but that's no surprise right there certain facts make it into the film with the details of the trial sidestep to focus on the curse instead while that largely works in the film's favor the primary downside is the occultist eugenie boudrant is stereotypically portrayed as evil it's a one-dimensional framing that doesn't get any further exploration, somewhat to the detriment of the case itself. And it makes for a somewhat less compelling antagonist. Arnie, meanwhile, is treated solely as a victim, and his murder of Bruno glossed over to focus on the details of the supernatural case. The film sidesteps contending with the grisly details of the case beyond the demonic possession, for better or worse. That aside, The Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It is certainly a strong sequel. Juan did a great job with the first two films, and Chavez capitalizes on an already established relationships and world, while also adding his own style and horror angles. This refreshes the franchise while also getting back to basics by turning its focus back onto the Warrens and their casework in later years. The film is chilling, balance, balancing its actually scary horror with a lot of heart, advancing the Warren story, and providing audiences with a change of pace from their usual cases. So there you guys have it. Uh sounds great i'm even more excited to uh watch it now than i was before like i said that is dropping this friday on hbo max and theaters limited theaters i should say across the country here in the united states so moving on uh first agnes trailer and photos tease a classic exorcism horror film i guess horror you know Demonic possession and nuns are all the craze right now. Now, who doesn't love some possessed nuns? I didn't, that's not me. That's, that's the subheading right there. As the 2021 Tribeca Film Festival ramps up, we're getting more and more hints at the films featured at the festival, including the upcoming nun, nun horror films, horror film Agnes, 
helmed by Mickey Reese, the director behind indie hits like Climate of the Hunter and T-Rex, Agnes follows a priest-in-waiting and his jaded mentor as they set out to discover if the rumors of demonic possession at the nunnery are true. The film stars Molly C. Quinn, Jake Horowitz, Sean Gunn, Chris Browning, Ben Hall, Mary Buss, and Chris Sullivan, who make up the cast of nuns and priests in this classic horror tale. Unlike other demonic possession films, Agnes' trailer seems to break out from the mold, particularly through Reese's choice to focus on the mystery of the possession rather than its scary effects. The combination of the disillusioned priest teaming up with the rookie sees Reese pulling from noir and thriller tropes, as well as including some classic paranormal effects like speaking in tongues and objects flying off the shelves. So there we have a screenshot. Let's see, where is this trailer that they're talking about? Let's go ahead and watch this. Alleluia. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. What do you know about exorcism? I know that it's still holy, right? Even though the church doesn't really practice it anymore. Wrong. They just don't claim it. Two weeks ago, there was an incident with one of the sisters at Santa Teresa. I can't wear this. I'm not a priest. This is going to cause problems in there. We should look at this as a test of faith for all of us. We're afraid the added pressure is making him erratic. Treat someone like an animal, they will act like an animal. <laughs> I've never seen anything like this before in my life. I thought you were supposed to be the expert. I keep asking for God to guide me, and I hear nothing back. You have to bury the dead, Mary. It has to be. It's an exorcism. Alright. That's got me. No, seriously. That looks really, really good. Uh, demonic possession and exorcism movies on the way include a reboot of paranormal... Oh, really? They're rebooting paranormal activity. What does that mean? They're remaking it? Or are they continuing the story? Because the way they left it off with the last movie, you know... The little demon Toby got his wish. He got born into this world, and that's where the movie ended. Anyway, another addition to the Conjuring franchise, titled The Devil Made Me Do It, uh, is a Rosemary's Baby modern update called False Positive. Another film in production from Sam Raimi called Every House is Haunted, plus a whole bunch of other reboots, remakes, and sequels. And if anybody, had, like I said, has any doubts on how popular horror is, there you go again. It is, like I've been saying, horror is uh, one of the top film genres out right now. It's at its peak. Although it draws from decades of films and hundreds of stories, Agnes can at least boast an original story, which is more than the current state of horror can say. Agnes has its world premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival on June 12th. 
check out the trailer and the first images below. And I got to say something about um, how you keep reading these headlines on how horror is like the black sheep in the film industry. It's not as well received. And, you know, over this last weekend and over the last couple of days, if you really think about it, well, I don't think that's true anymore. And it hasn't been true for a long time. But I think horror filmmakers uh, like to hold on to that being sort of the black sheep of the family. Um, even though it's, I don't think it's true anymore. It's really not. Horror is very mainstream. It's very popular. Like I said, it's one of the most popular genres of television and film out there right now. But you still see these, you know, PR, you know, filmmakers want to keep horror in like this underrated special club type of genre that only a few people are into. And it's not. There are a lot of horror fans out there, guys. And we were at a convention just this past weekend. There are some dedicated horror fans out there, and there's lots of them. Uh, in fact, I would say genre, I mean, genre-wise, I would say horror has probably the most loyal fan base of any film or TV out there. And I don't think many people can argue with that. So, uh, just reading through some of you guys' comments, want to welcome everybody who's just joined us. Thank you for joining in. So, let's see what else we have for you. The Walking Dead, World Beyond, Season 2, Robert Palmer Watkins joins the AMC series. So, The Walking Dead, World Beyond has added a new name to its cast. Robert Palmer Watkins will recur in Season 2 as Lieutenant Frank Newton, according to Deadline. Watkins appeared as a guest star in one episode of the AMC show's first season. The actor previously played Dylan Quartermain, Quartermain, sorry, Quartermain on ABC's General Hospital. The Walking Dead World Beyond follows the first generation raised in a surviving civilization of the post-apocalyptic world. The show stars Aaliyah Royale, Alexa Mansour, Annette Mahandru, Nicholas Cantu, Hal Crumpston, Nico Tortorella, and Julia Ormond. The story begins following two sisters... As we know, we've talked about this a lot on their quest to go find out what's going on with their dad from Omaha into upstate New York, pursued by those who wish to protect them and those who wish to harm them. It's a tale of growing up and transformation. The story unfolds across dangerous terrain, challenging everything that they know about the world. And we've talked about this show a lot in detail. Uh, it's a great show. It's a limited two-season only show, part of the Walking Dead universe. And uh, by the end of season one, we find out that Alexa Mansour's Hope character is what the CRM in the Walking Dead universe sees as an asset. And the whole thing was pretty much to get them out. 
of uh, their little colony in Omaha. So the CRM can basically go in and butcher everyone there. And Annette Mahandrew is who is a former guest of ours, as is Aaliyah Royale, who plays Iris Bennett. Uh, Annette Mahandrew's character, who's Huck, is part of the CRM who infiltrated the Omaha colony to make sure that Hope's, uh, Alexa Mansour's character, Hope, is delivered to the CRM because the CRM is all about saving people who are or who they see as being worthy of humanity going forward in the post-apocalyptic world. Season two, we don't have an official release date of season two, World Beyond, but if I were to guess, it'd be sometime late this fall, October maybe. It has not been officially announced, so we have to wait and see. Uh, so that's to answer Lisa's question, who's a, who is asking, is there a start date? Nope, no start date yet. We have a start date for The Walking Dead, uh, the beginning of the final season, season 11. That's going to be on August 22nd. Beyond that, we don't have any other start dates. So let's see, let's see. Trailer. I love trailers. Shutter director returns with thigh horror called The Medium. Early 2000s Asian horror cinema peaked around the, re- the release of Banjong, oh, I'm going to butcher that, Pisan Tonkan's thigh horror masterpiece Shutter, 2004, which was eventually remade here in the United States by 20th Century Fox and the producer behind The Ring and The Grudge. Uh, I'm not going to say the name again, I'm not going to butcher it again, is back with a new film called The Medium, a supernatural horror flick that was produced by Korea's Na Hong Jing, who was behind classics such as The Wailing, Yellow Sea, The Chase. Um, Now Variety has the exclusive trailer for The Medium described as a horrifying story of a shaman's inheritance in the Isan region of Thailand. And then it says, quote, but the goodness that appears to have taken possession of a family member turns out not to be as benevolent as it first appears. So let's check this out. Why did they put the subtitles so small? How can they see our me, P. Unite to sing to young? Cabomen care and Vinyan Contai, young Diano. Neban Nampa, Nam Kao, Nam Tun Mai, Tam Hai Tam Nasia. Me, P. You, but to young. Story about shamanism.
Did I miss something in the last thing? I was expecting a jump scare. Never got it. Maybe that was the point. They were trying to break, break, break the cliches. But going back to movies that have come out of Southeast Asia, like Indonesia and Thailand, they, they, they make some great horror movies, some really scary-ass horror movies. Then, of course, also Japan, uh, South Korea. South Korea uh, makes some great zombie movies. So I really like watching movies uh, out of Asia because they, they really do make some scary-ass movies. So I always keep an eye on those. So the horror movie cliche that makes absolutely no sense. Just one. Of course, there's only one. Perhaps, horror, perhaps, more than any other film genre, is linked to familiar cliches that audiences have come to cherish as heartily as we ridicule them. We expect the action to occur at night. We know there's a strong chance that the car won't start when the protagonist attempts an escape. And we are certain a mobile phone signal will cut out at the worst possible time. The list of horror cliches is long, and as Screen pointed out, it often involves abstinence, avoidance of drugs and alcohol, and the ill-fated statement, I'll be right back. No supporting character, you will not. Horror cliches typically fall into one of two categories. The first category involves events and circumstances that fall outside of the hero's control, like the aforementioned car and cell phone troubles, as well as power outages and stormy weather. The second category usually relies on the protagonist's stupidity, like deciding to split up when we know there is safety in numbers and investigating that strange noise in the middle of the night. As explained below, one of the most insufferable cliches falls within the latter category. And here's a big heading, don't go upstairs. With nearly inevitability, a horror movie will include a character who, while attempting to outrun the antagonist, heads upstairs instead of making a beeline for the nearest ground floor exit. Seeking higher ground may be the best option in a war movie, but it usually spells disaster in a horror flick. What exactly does the character hope to accomplish by going upstairs? Short of a chopper waiting on the roof to ferry them to safety, or the antagonist having a debilitating fear of heights, there's little benefit to racing upstairs. Yet time and time again, we watch in angry disbelief, often shouting at the screen, as soon as the, the soon-to-be victim climbs those steps. So, you made it to the second floor. Congratulations. Now what? Are you going to make a daring leap out of a window, or are you going to lock yourself in the bathroom and hope the lock holds? Savvy audiences know that neither the window nor the bathroom offer sustainable safety. By heading upstairs, the character has not only eliminated an easier escape route, they've also managed to ensure 
No neighbor, dog walker, or jogger can come to their aid. As much as we love most of the horror movie cliches, watching a character foolishly race upstairs is insulting to both the audiences, the audience and the character. Perhaps it's time to retire that particular cliche. And what gets me personally, guys, is the let's split up to cover more ground. No. No. Why? I, I don't get that. If I'm in a situation in any TV show or movie that I'm seeing and I'm in a dark place or an abandoned place, or one that is seemingly abandoned, and I'm with one or two more people, one of the first ideas that is, come to, that is going to come to my head is not to split up. The going up the stairs thing, that's just curiosity. You know, I if a person is actually put in that kind of a situation, you'd be amazed at how much curiosity takes over that you have to go see what's up there. So that I can sort of understand. But the whole splitting up shit? No. Come on. Really? No. Anyway, five ways Friday the 13th is the better summer horror camp movie and five ways it's sleepaway camp. And the reason why I'm doing this article is because at the convention we were just at this past weekend was the star of sleepaway camp. And that is Felissa Rose. And Felissa Rose, uh, she looks amazing. She played Angela in Sleepaway Camp. It was really awesome to get to meet her up close, talk to her. And she is so popular. Uh, out of all the guests there, her table never had uh, a lull. Any kind of moment where there was no one in line. All the other guests, you know, they had some lulls here and there. But Felissa, always a line. She always had a line, people lining up for her autograph, for people to take a picture with her. And it just goes to show you how popular of a movie Sleepaway Camp was. And um, she's still very active in the industry from behind the screen, from behind the scenes in producing a lot of films. She's always producing films. We had a good chat with her manager as well. Uh, but man, she is a very popular girl, beautiful woman. So to many, summer camp is full of fun times and fond memories. I wouldn't know, I've never, I grew up in New York City. I mean, going to camp in a wooded area was nowhere near the top of my things to do list as a little kid. It is a way to escape life and just relax for a few weeks. To horror fans, it is a world of murder and carnage. In 1980, Friday the 13th changed the way horror fans saw summer camp and spawned a subgenre to further cement those feelings. One of those was inspired by the first chapter in the Voorhees saga was Sleepaway Camp. Now, Sleepaway Camp is just a great movie. The film should have become lost with countless other Friday the 13th clones that were released around that same time, but instead, it became a cult classic that too many surpasses the original Friday the 13th. 
The debate on which chiller is the best is still being had today, with little signs of stopping. So, here are the five reasons why each one is better than the other. And this is a great picture of Friday the 13th, the original. It was Tom Savini who first gave us the image of Jason Voorhees as a boy at the end of Friday the 13th when he jumps out of the lake and drags down Alice, played by Adrian King. So here's a great snapshot of that picture. And it was Tom Savini that brought us this iconic image. One leg up on Friday the 13th has on Sleepaway Camp is the backstory. The story of a young boy named Jason who drowns is known far and wide in the horror community. Equally as known is how the boy's mother sought revenge on anyone who dared to reopen Camp Crystal Lake, finally resorting to killing counselors one by one in the film. Fans of the series know the story doesn't end with Mrs. Voorhees' rampage, but it's just the start of the mayhem is the exact kind of story told around campfires which seems to be the entire point. Now, Sleepaway Camp. The kids are actual kids. And there's Felissa Rose right there on the right, who played Angela in Sleepaway Camp. With the specific laws regarding, regarding underage kids and filming, oftentimes movies use actors 18 or older to portray children. With Sleepaway Camp, the kids are played by actual kids ranging in ages 13 to 17. This not only adds a sense of believability, but also adds to the horror of seeing real kids seemingly in danger. The horror classic The Exorcist also did this, as Reagan, played by Linda Blair, was actually played by 14-year-old Linda Blair. In a world full of 20-somethings playing teens, seeing real kids is a breath of fresh air to horror fans. Now, Friday the 13th, The Creative Deaths. How many of you guys realize that, that Kevin Bacon was in the original Friday the 13th? Because he was. Right there is his picture. One thing the Friday films would have been known for is its creative ways the characters are being removed from the plot. The first film is no exception, featuring effects from Tom Savini. The deaths in the film are top-notch and a perfect sign of the kills that would later come into the series. Now, I believe Kevin Bacon, whose death scene happens on the bed, he gets an arrow shoved from the back of the mattress that you see come out from the front of his throat. Number seven, Sleepaway Camp, familiar summer camp feel. Sleepaway camp takes place while the camp is actually open, meaning it feels closer to the feeling of being a summer camp. Friday the 13th revolves around a group of counselors preparing to open up the camp. We're almost out of time, so I'm going to quickly go through this. Number six, Friday the 13th, memorable characters. Love them or hating, one viewing of Friday the 13th and fans will remember the characters. Many of the characters are stereotyped but aren't one-notes like most 
of the characters in later films. The characters in the movies are far from the best that the genre has to offer, but for a movie that was originally nothing more than a Halloween ripoff, it could have been a lot worse. Sleepaway Camp, great child actors. Um, while many of the adult characters are either okay or to downright terrible actors, the child actors mostly turn in believable performances. The main characters all seem like kids viewers may have actually known at some point or another. Uh, Lisa writes, I've obviously never heard of safety in numbers and always leave yourself as an out. Yes, yes, going back to the whole why splitting up thing. Uh, number four, Friday the 13th, the music score. Of course, it, that has become infamous. Uh, number three, Sleepaway Camp. Characters receiving their compupants. And this guy, this dude right here, if you guys rem if you guys remember the movie Sleepaway Camp, he died when uh, a big pot of boiling water was dumped on him. And I remember that scene, man. Uh, they showed his face after being burned by that water and his skin all blistery and bubbling. Pretty nasty. Number two, Friday the 13th, the legacy of the film. While Sleepaway Camp has several sequels under its belt, it has nothing on the impact Friday the 13th had on the genre and in films in general. What was originally cheap cash in on the Halloween film quickly became gold standard of horror films and gave birth to arguably the most iconic horror legend of all time. And tomorrow at 6 p.m., Kane Hodder, who portrayed that horror legend, Jason Voorhees, is going to be our special guest here, so make sure you tune in for that. Halloween certainly spawned its imitators, but Friday the 13th jump-started the summer horror craze and still remains one of the best slasher films of all time. While not introduced for two more films, most people will have a hard time seeing a hockey mask and not thinking of the unlucky date. And we also had Larry Zerner, who played Shelley in Friday the 13th Part 3, who is responsible for Jason getting that iconic hockey mask. And number one, Sleepaway Camp, the ending. You gotta make that number one. For the 1980s, that big twist that we got in Sleepaway Camp, where you actually find out that Angela is actually a boy, not a girl, uh, where she's discovered laying by the lake, and all you see is that guy's head in her lap, she gets up, the head goes rolling across the sand, she turns around, and the actual adult camp counselors are looking at her, and he's like, Angela, I don't know, I forget what he said verbatim, but he's like, she's a boy. <laughs> While the twist at the end of Friday the 13th is well known, it stands no chance against the final minutes of sleepaway camp. Iconic hardly does the scene justice as it completely changes the entire film and sends chills down the spine of even veteran 
horror hounds. The scene is creepy, almost by accident. Using unnerving music to drive the point home, anyone who has seen horror films knows the specific shot that makes this nightmarish sequence absolutely horrifying. There is little that can be said about the scene without giving it away, but any lover of horror who hasn't seen the movie owes it to themselves to do so, and I'm sorry, but it's been 40 years, and there is a timeline to where spoilers expire. So, if you haven't watched Sleepaway Camp yet, yeah, Angela's a boy. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Lisa writes, they've obviously never heard of... Oh, sorry, I already read that out. Uh, so anyway, guys, just looking at the time, like I said, we haven't done a solo show for almost a week, and we've used up all our time today going over some of the latest headlines and news. Uh, tune in. Over the next several days, we're going to be doing three special guest interviews over the next two days, two episodes tomorrow, one starting at 3 p.m., sorry, 6 p.m. Eastern, Kane Hodder. The iconic Jason Voorhees is going to be joining us. And at 9.30 p.m. tomorrow, Hannah Fearman from the uh, great movie VHS is going to be joining us. It's going to be an exciting day tomorrow, exciting interview on Friday. More guests are going to be announced in the days to come, so please tune in. It's been a lovely, wonderful hour. It's been great talking to you guys. Stay safe, and until tomorrow, remember to always stay walking. Good night.